we will this evening, though, um, we will reconsider a lesson that I have taught before um, in Christology, and it fits really nicely with the morning sermon, uh, and a sermon that um, that honestly, um, as I was re- going over my notes again, I was looking at um, uh, some of the things that were um, that might have been a bit uh, technical, um, and it's always nice to um, to go back and to look at these things. Um, and get a better picture of what we are what we are talking about. So this evening, we're going to talk about uh, this the sacrifice of Christ, um, and uh, we know the sacrifice of Christ. You know, as that time in the life and ministry of Christ, where he enters into the dark night of the soul. He enters into the into the dark night of what is called the sensitive soul in which he experiences and undergoes the passion. Uh, he experiences uh, the, the the sufferings. Um, he experiences all the pain, all the agony, all the betrayal. Um, the father, for uh, a brief moment, uh, abandons his son to suffering. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't guard his son with a hedge of protection but rather he gives his son over uh, to experience the passion and to experience the agony and pain. And, you know, when we think about the death of Christ, um, I find that when you ask, if you were to ask a Christian, um, what is it about the death of Christ that allows your sins to be forgiven? So we might think that all of Christ is doing when he dies is merely dying. Right, that, that, that there's a man on the cross and he's he's dying for us. But what we want to answer tonight is what is he actually doing in his death? So when he's when Christ is when he's offering himself up, you see. And so when, even when I use that language, when he offers himself up, what am I meaning there? Well, Christ as a lamb offers himself to the Father. On the altar, which is the cross. Okay? That's simply how you can think of it, right? And it's interesting, though, because Christ is not merely just the lamb, but he's also the priest as well. So he's both the priest and he's also uh, the victim. Uh, that's offering oneself to the Father. Okay? So what is happening in the sacrifice of Christ? And things, you know, um, this is very important for us to know because... This is one of the great things that we um, um, confess as Christians, as the church, right? This is one of the great articles of faith, uh, that Jesus Christ died for me. So we have to ask, okay, what is it about Christ's death uh, that makes it, and what I'm going to argue later, is a pleasing aroma to the Father? What, what is it about the death of Christ that allows the Father to look at the Son's sacrifice and essentially say, well done, good and faithful servant? What is it about his death? I'm going to argue this evening that Christ's sacrifice is a worshipful act to God to satisfy divine justice. Okay? It is a worshipful act to God. So Jesus Christ at the cross is giving to God worship. We might not, we might never thought of, um, the sacrifice of Christ in that manner, but it's important for us to think of it that manner that it is Christ offering to God worship to do what? To appease, to satisfy the justice of God. 
Because of our sin, we owe to God a sacrifice, and Jesus Christ gives to God a sacrifice. Now, mind you, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gives to the Father, God is not looking, or we could say this, God is not looking for merely just a sacrifice in itself. Like, God is not a, 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 a bloodthirsty deity, where he's just looking for blood, right? Uh, but rather, um, what Jesus Christ does in the sacrifice is he both offers something that is externally and internally pleasing to God. Okay? Externally and internally pleasing to God. Um, essentially, that's the gist of everything I'm going to say tonight. Okay? So if you don't get anything that I've said, I'm going to say later, that is essentially what I'm going to say tonight is that Jesus Christ offers both an external and inward sacrifice to the Father that is pleasing to Him. External, internal. Okay? <clears throat> let's first answer the question. Uh, let's first answer what is the nature of sacrifice? Now, in the, there are many ways in which we can talk about sacrifice in the English language. Uh, and the most common way in which we speak of sacrifice today is generally in relation to either acts of fortitude or acts of temperance. So I'm just giving you two ways in which people might speak of sacrifice. Uh, the first is an act of fortitude. Now, fortitude is defined as mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. Uh, so, for example, uh, a man on a battlefield uh, has a grenade thrown in the midst of his unit. And in an act of sacrifice, he jumps on the grenade so that he will die and not the rest of his unit. That's an act of fortitude. Okay? So the, the, the soldier jumping on the grenade to save his unit, uh, he's doing so courageously by sacrificing himself for the good of others. Okay? In addition to this act of fortitude is also the act of temperance. And temperance simply means restraint. It's an act of of sacrifice by holding oneself back. So, for example, a father, indifference in, uh, to his family, uh, denies himself particular desires that he wants and has in order to fulfill the desires of others. So, for instance, the father really wants to buy the new Xbox. If he knows he buys a new Xbox, then the bills are not going to be paid and there's not going to be food on the table. So out of act of sacrifice, he withholds himself from buying the Xbox so that there can be food in the fridge and the bills can be paid. Now, these are all noble virtues. Um, however, they're not in the sense in which Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice. Okay, so what do we mean? When Christ offers himself up on the cross, he's not acting in fortitude whereby he's jumping on the grenade of God's wrath. Okay, many people think of Christ's sacrifice like this, that God is so angry that he's about to hit someone, and right when he's about to hit someone, Jesus Christ jumps in the way, pushes the world out the way, and gets hit for us. That's not how we are to think of the sacrifice of Christ. Nor is Christ acting in temperance, where he's restraining himself for the good of the church, but rather the sacrifice that Christ offers up is an act of justice. Okay? Is an act of justice. Justice. Let me give you an example. As a parent, and many of you are parents here, in what ways 
um, are you to act justly to your child? In what ways are you to act justly to your child? Well, how does your child demand justice from you? Well, as a parent, you owe your son or daughter or whoever a safe place to live, food, and protection. You owe that to your child, okay? But with respect to God and us, we as creatures have certain duties to God that we owe to God a due proportion of all that we have. And this is one of the ways this truth is seen uh, by a sacrifice. So this is one of the ways this truth is seen is by a sacrifice. A sacrifice of justice is a visible sign that is offered to God. So something that is visible that one could see, it's offered to God as testimony of an inward reality of that which is due to God. Okay? So... Because within myself, I know within myself that God is owed something. I give to God that something, right? And that something is whatever, <laughs> you know, it's something external. Um, Thomas Aquinas says, a sacrifice properly so-called is something done for that honor, which is properly due to God in order to appease him. And hence, it is that Augustine that says a true sacrifice is every good work in order that one may cling to God in holy fellowship. The nature, saints, ultimately, of Christ's sacrifice is one of justice. God is owed X, and out of love for who God is, I'm going to demonstrate that by an outward expression, by sacrifice. Okay? So, Christmas time. Your son and daughter, you know, because of the laws of Christmas, they are owed X, because you love them inwardly, you show that love for them outwardly by doing what? Getting them a present. Simple as that, right? <clears throat> the biblical witness of this type of sacrifice, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And honestly, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 2. And this is really just the, this is just the main text of all of this. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Now, okay, so here Paul is saying, we're to walk as Christ walked, and he gave himself up for us. And hear what he says here. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay? An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay? In love, Christ offers himself unto God. And how does the Father view the sacrifice of Christ? So, if we were to think... Christ is on the cross. How does the Father, when he looks down upon the cross, how does he see? What is he, how is he viewing the sacrifice of his son? Paul says it's a fragrant aroma. It's a fragrant aroma. And this should immediately take us back to the Old Testament when uh, the flood had subsided and everyone and everything exited the ark. Noah built an altar and there he made a sacrifice on that altar and read in Genesis 8.21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So the proper sacrifice of Noah was a pleasing aroma to God. Okay, When Noah offers a sacrifice to God, it is pleasing to God. And this theme is all throughout the Old Testament. That proper worship of God's people results in a pleasing aroma and God delights in it. That's why sometimes you'll hear me or Pastor Antonio say, God, may you allow our worship to you be a pleasing aroma. Okay. Now, we must note that a sacrifice in and of itself is not pleasing to God. So it's not as if I can just give to God a sacrifice and say, God, here, you're, I'm done. 
right? But rather, the pleasure of the aroma comes in a sacrifice properly made to cleanse and remove the defilement of the people. So the, the sacrifice that God finds as a pleasing aroma are those sacrifices by those who offer to God that which is properly due to him with a sincere heart. You, you don't want something from someone and it's coming from a bad place, a bad heart, right? So if someone gives you a gift and they say, here, take it, um, and they continue to just throw it in your face, you have to question the sincerity of them giving you that gift. You say, well, you know, if you're not doing it from a pure place, then why even give it to me? It's kind of the same thing here, okay? If you, if, if you are going to offer something to God, it needs to come from a pure place, okay? A pure place. This is clearly stated in Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I will give it, right? You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God looks for not merely the outward expression of the heart, but the inward reality, right? That is to be there, right? Again, the sacrifices that God finds delight in are one of proper heart posture and one that visibly offers to God what's rightly due to him. So God, because I'm inwardly cut to the heart, I'm going to show that by outwardly giving you this. Okay? Both sacrifices are to be worthy and pleasing to God and proper. And I would argue that God created man with this natural sense of offering to God what is rightly due to him. Meaning, written on the hearts of man was not merely the law of God, but also offering to God what is due to him. Okay, so written on the heart of man in Genesis, before the the law was given on two tablets of stone, people were offering sacrifices to God. Why? Because it was written on their hearts. We see this in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel, they bring sacrifices to God. Now, why are Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices to God if there's nothing prior to these verses of Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, that explicitly says that you are to offer a sacrifice to God. Why are they doing this? Because it's written on the heart. Adam taught his boys the law of God. And it's something that they did by nature. That before the God formally instituted the sacrificial system, under the Mosaic Covenant, At the very early stages of the history of the world, men are offering sacrifices to God. Men are offering to God what God is properly owed. Why does Noah and Cain, why do all these men offer a sacrifice to God? Because we owe to God a due proportion of what we have. The Apostle Paul sums this up best in Romans chapter 2 verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these although not having the law, are a law with them themselves. In other words, simply this. Natural reason tells mankind that they are subject to a higher being. Okay? There is is an innate knowledge that everyone has, and they know that they are subject to God. 
And because of this, men ought to render to God that which is due to him as a matter of justice. So we aren't to think that our unsaved family members don't know God. Of course they know God. There is an innate knowledge that everyone has of God. But as you know, as Paul tells us in Romans, they suppress, they bring down that knowledge of God. Right? <clears throat> we are created in God's image. And because it is so, we owe f- our full obedience to God. We owe service to God. <clears throat> so how does this all relate to Jesus Christ and his offering of a sacrifice? Okay? How does this all relate to Christ? <clears throat> as we have already noted, there are two types of sacrifice that men generally think of. One of fortitude or one of temperance. And the common way Christians may think of Christ's sacrifice is one of fortitude. Again, where God is so angry that in order to appease him and wipe away our sin, Jesus jumps on the grenade of God's wrath. Okay? Like God in heaven is about to explode. He's so furious and so angry. And right when he explodes, before he explodes, and explodes rather on someone, uh, Jesus Christ jumps on that explosion so that we don't have to uh, feel uh, the wrath of God. In this view, Jesus jumps on the grenade and he takes this, uh, what's called wrath of God, the wrath of the Father on our behalf, so that we no longer face an angry God, but now we have a loving God. Okay? So before the cross, God is very angry at you. After the cross, God loves you. And see, we aren't to read John 3.16 in that way. We aren't to think that for God so hated the world that he sent his son. But it says, for God so loved the world. Um, I want to say something, but I won't. Um, so... <clears throat> Uh, when, when, we, when we think about when we think about um, God and His love for the world, um, we are too related to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and what He's actually doing. That there is nothing pleasing in the aroma of Jesus Christ jumping on the grenade of God's wrath, so that we don't have to. But rather, that which is pleasing to the Father is the love which Christ shows for God in his offering. So God, I love you this much. Inwardly, I inwardly love you this much. He shows this inward love. And he gives to God an offering, which is his flesh, as a demonstration of a perfect and infinite contrition on the behalf of his own. Now, when I say... Perfect and infinite contrition. Contrition means remorse. So what do we, what do we mean? Does Christ have remorse? Well, yes, he does. He does so on the behalf of his people. He knows the sins of his people. He knows that in the heights of his intellect. He knows your sin better than you do. Why? Because he's sinless. And God knows that God is holy. He knows that better than we do. He sees the heinousness of sin. Why? Because he sees and he knows the holiness of God more perfectly than anyone does. And because he sees the sin of his people, and he he knows that, and he knows uh, the holiness of God, he's cut to the heart for for the behalf of the sins of his people. Not because he's a sinner, but because his people are sinners. The sacrifice of Christ is first and foremost a demonstration of, of Christ's great love of all that God is. So 
when we say if we were if if let's say we know this now if we were to go back 2000 years ago if we were to see Christ on the cross we can say that that man is up there is offering himself up as a demonstration of his great love for God that's what we can say and rather than saying oh there's just a criminal up there as others others might think of dying or rather that's just Jesus Christ up there dying for our sins but we can also say that Jesus Christ is up there and he's demonstrating his great love for God. Right? John Owen says this. <clears throat> All which and diverse other words, which in part shall be afterward considered, do declare the very same thing which we intend by satisfaction. So Owen is basically saying, what do we mean when we say that Christ offers a satisfaction to the Father? Okay? Um, what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ, on the behalf of us, repairs our relationship to God. What does that mean? Even a taking upon him the whole punishment due to sin, and in the offering of himself, doing that which God, who was offended, was more delighted and pleased with all than he was displeased and offended with all the sins of all those that he had suffered and offered for himself. And hear this. God was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and the sacrifice of his son than displeased with the sins and the rebellions of all the elect. Um, he's not here. I hope he's listening. If he's not, this is Dustin's favorite quote because <laughs> he tells me it all the time. Um, God was more pleased with the obedience and offering and sacrifice of his son. He's more pleased with that demonstration of justice to God, of what owes, what owes to God, then he's displeased with the sins and rebellions of, of the elect. Mind you, the, the people who are punished, being punished in hell, they're offering to God what he rightly deserves. It is just for them to suffer in hell. It is just. And what Owen is saying here is, God delights more in what Christ is doing rather than sending everyone to hell. Because both are a sign and a demonstration of God's justice. It's just that Jesus Christ offering himself up both inwardly and outwardly is a better, more perfect demonstration of God's justice than those who are suffering in hell. <clears throat> Notice Owen is saying that there's not a grenade of God's wrath that Jesus jumps on in order to appease him. But out of love for who God is, Jesus demonstrates how great the justice of God is. As sinners, we are infinitely in debt to God. And we justly deserve a punishment from God. And on the cross, it is as if Jesus is saying all the sins of the world are worthy of pain, are worthy of punishment, are worthy of torment, because of how great and marvelous God is. He sees who God is. And because of who God is, he says that all of the sorrow on the cross is worth it. And Christ offers himself up, both inwardly and outwardly, as a demonstration of his love for God. And God says, I am pleased with that demonstration of love. Again, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
God so loves, the love which Christ shows in his death on the cross. Why? Because Christ in his death is outwardly demonstrating the value and the worth of all that God is. Jesus Christ offers a most perfect and a most precious sacrifice of the Father, which is himself. This is why John 3.16 is utterly amazing. Because, and like I've talked to many of the brothers after church, that God so loved the world that he doesn't give a Rolex watch. He gives something more valuable. He gives his son. And Jesus Christ knows who he is, right? Not only in his divinity, but also in his humanity. He knows that he is God. And because he knows that, he knows the worth that he has. And he offers himself this infinite worth to an infinite God to remove an infinite punishment. That's kind of the logic of it. And in doing so, what is he doing? He's, he's demonstrating how wicked sin is, but also the value of God. Okay. Christ offers both an inward and outer sacrifice. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put his soul, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Now notice, not only does Christ offer his body an outward sacrifice, but this is important here, but he offers an inward sacrifice. Because the text says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Christ offers not only his body, but he offers his soul. He offers his whole being to the Father. And saints, this is how we are to think of the sacrifice of Christ. That Jesus Christ is not really just, we want to think, he's, oh, he's up there dying. <laughs> but rather, he's up there demonstrating the heinousness of sin. He's up there demonstrating the value of God. And he's outwardly demonstrating how much he loves God. And how much he's inwardly cut to the heart because of his people's sins. And because of that, the father looks upon the son. And it's been said many, many times that there never was a time that the father was more pleased with his son than when his son was on the cross. Because of what the son is doing. Right? In closing, <clears throat> we have learned many things uh, but specifically, we've learned that Christ's sacrifice is one out of the love for the justice of God. That God, you were owed this, and because you were owed this, and because you were worth it, I give you a, a payment that is, that is of equal value. Right? Christ in his sacrifice offers a per, most perfect act of worship, both inwardly and outwardly. And therefore is a pleasing aroma to God and thereby satisfies divine justice. You see, saints, the one thing that we needed most, one of the things we needed most, is for God's just demands to be satisfied. Okay? When we sinned in the garden, as we know, as you know, there was a big separation from us and God. In order for that separation, uh, to to be back into union, there needed to be some sort of repairing going on. There needed to be a, a satisfaction to be made. And when Jesus Christ does for us what we could not do for ourselves, and even when we say that, that Christ does for me what I could not do for myself, 
you can never offer up a sacrifice to God that was both inwardly and outwardly pleasing. No matter how holy you were, no matter how uh, angelic you are, no matter how perfect you think you may be, uh, no matter how much you think uh, that your that your emotions never override your reason, you can never inwardly offer to God, you can never inwardly be cut to the heart to an extent uh, where God would look upon and in your soul and say, that is a well that is a well pleasing sacrifice, and also too we can never offer ourselves outwardly to God. Right? This is why the lambs. This is why the goats. This is why all these animals were 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 told to be sacrifices because man, as man, can't do it. Us bodily can't do it. We are sinners. So when we say Christ does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, I hope that this lesson has brought a much more greater meaning to that. Just in the relationship of offering to God something. Not merely in the relationship to, and because we, we, do, we talk a lot about the law and the gospel, not in relation to how Christ obeyed the law, but rather what Christ does in the moments of his passion by offering to God what we can't offer to God. Something that was inwardly valuable, but also something that was outwardly valuable. And what do we do in light of this? Well, I close with the words of St. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Christ offers himself up as a sacrifice to God. Thereby, we offer ourselves up as a sacrifice of God to God, not for salvation, but for thanksgiving. Let's pray.